Billy and the Darbies, because it's a poem. And this will help put our work today, tonight, in perspective. Um, there's a lot we have to cover tonight, because what's behind Billy Budd's execution? It, you know, it'd be easy to feel sorry for him, to say Veer's wrong. I, I, I don't think any of those responses are adequate to the reading. Melville is, is going to the heart of something peculiarly American and showing us something wrong and something great. I don't think England can come to this for reasons I've already talked with you about. This is peculiarly American. Um, it's deeply political, deeply metaphysical. Okay, Billy Budd's going to be executed. Um, it'll it'll lead to the ending. And um, after a few short chapters, we get to this poem. One of the four top men who was a you know identified with Billy after his death, writes this poem, and over time, it's turned into a ballad. So, a couple things to try to put this in perspective. Um, when Billy Bud is executed, I, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'm going to go back, but I want to try to put, I want to try to do justice to this poem. When Billy Bud is executed, and Veer calls the ship to a formal standing, everybody comes out, and they do it with Claggart when he is buried, and they do it with Billy. There's a sense of a greater reverence when Billy's funeral takes place, when his body is, you know, washed, dumped into the sea, and the birds hover around. And the birds don't peck at him. It's a little bit like Ishmael and Moby Dick. They circle around. But this predatory thing that we saw in, Hemi in Hemingway, gone. Something happened. If you remember the end of Moby Dick, remember... All the birds closed their beaks as if there were muzzles on them. That was Melville's description. Something holy was taking place. It's a little bit like this now. The birds hover around. Billy's body is dropped into the sea. It's his burial. There's this murmur in the men. And Veer has to quiet it because there's a sense of this underlying trouble that that these men loved Billy Budd, that they all knew. He, he was one of them, and now he's gone. And you remember, we've had these two insurrections, at Nor and the other one, so that there's this inclination in men to, to rise up against their officers and mutiny. And that's obviously that's one of the great concerns of this story, and it's one of the reasons that court takes place and the decision made. Um... So this murmuring goes on, and it has to be quieted. Beer quiets it immediately. And then we learn um, about the naval publication, this, this description of what happened. That's abs it's, it's, it's fake news. It's, one of, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful example of fake news. It's people presenting things in a way that's not truthful to what happened. And then we get this account of the men who are, who are so identified with Billy that they followed the 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 spar, you know, when it got when the when the ship got dismantled, and the star was the spar was taken and used other things. So they would take splinters of it, and I'm assuming everybody saw that those were relics. They're exactly what the Catholic Church calls relics, and the men wanted to follow them through all of its all of its the spars, you know, migrations. And at one point, finally, one of the four men, who was a, was a friend of Billy's, writes this song. 
And eventually over time, it's turned into a ballad so that Billy's memory is kept alive. So this young kid who was killed, executed, not killed, executed, um, survives in this ballad. So it's a young four topsman who, this is what's crucial to see. He so identifies with Billy because Billy is one of them. He was executed. And he starts out as a friend identifying with him. And then for a moment, he enters into Billy's consciousness. And the, the greater part of whom is an expression of something that's going on in Billy as he faces his execution and then is executed. So there's a shift that takes place, okay? So our, for our poem tonight, I'm going to read the poem that ends the work, okay? That's our lyric for tonight. Billy and the Darbies. The Darbies means, the, you know, he's put in the stocks or he's put in handcuffs. He's arrested. Billy's in chains, okay? So this is a poem by one of the four topsmen who sings this ballad of this young kid who's been executed. And remember, the naval report <laughs> that went out after the execution was that Claggart was this self-serving or self-giving officer that he did everything he should have done, and Billy was this insurrectionist who, who stabbed him, who was this awful guy, and to make things worse, they made it clear that he was not English, because nobody, no, nobody English would do the, that sort of thing. So we've got all these, you know, this fake news, this information on, the, the don't report things as they were, followed by this ballad of an ordinary shipman, okay? Billy and the Darbies. Got to come in here for a minute because I've got to. As a matter of fact, what? sorry, give me a minute. Would you say hello to everybody? I'll be right back. I've got to pee. Hi, everybody. He'll be right back. No, no major problem tonight. Just something he has to do. Right. So he'll be right back. How are you guys all doing? I know. Good. Good. Well, several of us were concerned about him, though, yeah. last week. And uh, Tuesday, he seemed better than Monday. Yes. But yes. I was reminded of something my mom went through and I was witness to. And I think it's good he's gone to the doctor. Yes, yes. It was not a TIA, which I was grateful for. It was not, oh, it's not. No, okay. it was not a TIA. Um, mm -hmm. And it was not... Hallelujah. A, yes, hallelujah. And it was mm -hmm. not... A heart attack that would show up in either chemistry or his EKG. His EKG was normal, so that was that was all good. Um, the problem is that what that leads to is that it's his personality, his pressing, his inability to step back from his work. It would be a whole lot easier if it were a medical problem. <laughs> um, so we'll just we'll just see. So we will follow up on it. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I think we've You're all right. been pre informed this week anyway. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> maybe you should rest these next two weeks while we're not reading. No, maybe I should keep going. You guys be still. <laughs> 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 okay, come on. Here's the poem. Here's the poem Billy, Billy and the Darbies. Um, so remember, this is one of us. I mean, it's really crucial to see. This is one of us. 
Remember that what happened at Spithead and Norris um, involved sailors who were protesting the treatment of officers because the officers were mistreating them, they were impressing them, doing injustices. So what happened at Spithead involved, um, resulted in legislation that um, resulted in better working conditions for the sailors. Um, but still there were mutinies and what happened in Norse is that the men rose up and took control of the ship and actually put the uh, British nation at risk. So there were mutinies and executions. So that's the background. We, we just have to keep that in our mind. And we know that just a few years off is the Civil War. That the lawlessness in this country has reached an extreme point and we're heading for a war. It's not America. So, I, I, so that's, that's the background of this story, okay? So this is one of us. This is one of Billy's four topsmen. Somebody who would have been at the foretop with Billy who would have stood with him with other people who were in the working class, in the trenches, doing what most of us do um, each day of our lives. Billy and the Darbys. Good of the chaplain to enter Lone Bay and down on his marrow bones here and pray for the likes just to me, for somebody just like me, Billy Budd. But look, through the port comes the moonshine astray. It's, it tips the guard's cutlass and silvers the nook, brings the light into where he is. But twill die in the dawning of Billy's last day. A jewel block they'll make of me tomorrow. Notice the shift. Now we're in Billy. Um, Twill die in the dawning of Billy's last day. A jewel block they'll make of me tomorrow. Pendant pearl from the yardarm end. Like the eardrop I gave to Bristol Molly. You can imagine a guy on um, furlough going out and spending an evening with women. Oh, tis me, not the sentence they'll suspend. Aye, aye, all is up. And I must go too. Early in the morning, aloft from now, on an empty stomach now, never it would do. They'll give me a nibble, bit of biscuit, ere I go. Sure, a messmate will reach me the last parting cup, but turning heads away from the hoist and the belay, heaven knows who will have the running of me up, and who's going to string him up, who's going to be the executioner. No pipe to those halyards, no guy's going to be smoking a pipe when that happens, but aren't it all sham? A blurs in my eyes, it is dreaming that I am a hatchet to my hawser. The, the line that moors it, is somebody kind of cut it to free him? A hatchet to my hawser, all adrift to go? The drum roll to grog, to beer, and Billy never know. But Donald, he has promised to stand by the plank, so I'll shake a friendly hand ere I sink. But no, it is dead when I'll be, come to think. I remember Taff, the Welshman, when he sank. And his cheek it was like the budding pink. But me they'll lash in hammock, drop me deep. Fathoms down, fathoms down, how I'll dream fast asleep. I feel it stealing now, sentry. Are you there? Just ease these darbies at the wrist, the handcuffs he's got on, and roll me over fair. I'm sleepy, and the oozy weeds about me twist. He's sinking to the bottom of the ocean. 
By the way, I'm going to ask you guys to do something. Just for those of you who are curious, it's not, I mean, you know that I'm, these are suggestions that I, I periodically I look at some of the study guides and just to see what people are doing with stuff, and it just almost always leaves me stunned. Some of them really good, some of them really bad. And I'm, <laughs> God. Go online and look at study guides or uh, spark, notes. Hmm? Spark, spark notes. Go online and look at spark notes. Go to the last chapter, chapter 30, and read the analysis. It just stunned me, and it makes me aware of how badly people can read. That's an, an established, and, and I think for the most part, it's a, good, it's a good study guide. But Suzanne and I have watched it over the years, and we're just aware of how people's ideologies, the, the ideas they have in their mind, color the way they read things. Um, you might take a look at that just to, it's actually in keeping with the story because at the end of the story we're going to get about a little bit of fake news. Anyway, that's the poem. Um, just this comment on, so we have a guy writing a poem because he identifies with Billy Budd, he was executed, People carry that memory with them, the, soul, the sailors. But at one point, he actually identifies with him. He goes down. And um, I'm, I don't want to take the questions up right now, but um, one of the people who's anti-Christian was making the point that there's no resurrection here. I don't think there's ever a question of resurrection. The question is not about a resurrection. The question is not. That's, that's just an absolute misreading. This has nothing to do with the resurrection. This has to do with whether there's a, an immortality to the soul and whether the soul doesn't go on to share a life with Christ after death. And that goes to how we read that moment when Billy Budd is executed and strange things happen. But that's where we're going. So let me wait. That, anyway, that, hold on to that poem because it ends, it ends the story. Let me, let me go now to the, um, the book itself. Um, very, very quickly, if I can, um, just by way of review, if you've read Melville now, so you know that very little happens in the, in the way of overt action in the first 16 chapters. That most of what Melville does takes the form of setup. We talked about that twice now, first eight chapters, second. In the first eight chapters, Melville's dealing with um, Billy Budd's impressment. He's leaving one area of the merchant, you know, Marines into a battleship, um, the rights of um, the rights of man to the belly potent. But he was impressed and new captains, new circumstances, and he's at war. And Melville is constantly taking us into the characters of people to enlarge our view. He did exactly the same thing in the next eight chapters from um, 9 to 16, 16, 17. So for 16 chapters, what he's doing is largely setting up things and all the while preparing us. But the, the events that prepare us are almost insignificant. Billy spills soup in his mess. Plager gets upset. But we already know that it, it's irrelevant it, whether he'd spilled soup or not. didn't matter. Claggart is envious of this kid. So he's already got his eyes on him. So almost nothing's happening, but Melville spends his time analyzing what's going on in a larger world. It's the French-English war, America's relation to the world, 
there's a much larger thing going on and it's coloring everything that's going on in this particular case. One of the reasons I, I want to stress that as much as I do think about Hemingway. Hemingway does exactly the opposite. Exactly. Or almost exactly the opposite. Hemingway gives you no exposition of what's going on inside characters. Melville's, Melville's approach is to give us various understandings. The captains, the shipmen, the claggard, Billy. So we're getting a whole picture, but here's the point. We're getting the picture from an extremely sensitive, intelligent man. So he's, aware, he's making us aware of things that most people involved in the action aren't, are not aware of. The Dansker has some sense of it. When Billy goes to him, the Dansker makes it clear that he sees Claggart's up to something. So that man's perceptive. But the, the, the narrator's of a different order. He describes Veer as a man... I want everybody to think about this. He describes Veer as a man who's well-educated, who has a sense of the past, who deals with contemporary problems with a sense of the past that makes most of his fellow officers uncomfortable. They can't relate to it. He seems to have a perspective on things that other men don't have. For the narrator says that, for a narrator to say that means he's, his view of things is large enough for him to see it. So in Hemingway, the focus is almost constantly on an individual or a couple. And the world around them um, doesn't get filled out. The focus is on a man, often, or a man or a woman. So it's very private, um, but we don't go into what's going on in other people. Hemingway calls that the tip of the iceberg. We've already talked about it. One way of describing what Melville's doing, this is really important for the themes that I'm getting to, so I'm not just talking about a technique. What Melville does is the opposite. What he does is show us the whole iceberg because his sense is whatever goes on in the tip of that iceberg will not make sense. We will not see the full meaning of it if we don't see everything underneath. So in one sense, Hemingway's far more a modern. He's far more skeptical. He doesn't touch that stuff. This narrator goes to it all. So that when we look at what happens between Billy and Veer, we've got a sense of a much larger world um, as it relates to that, what happens between that pair. So it infinitely deepens it um, in the way that Melville presents it, okay? Um, some of the more important themes we've talked about, Billy's an image of the American Adam. He could be British. We, d we don't know what his past is. He doesn't even know. But I think it's safe to say, knowing Melville, that he's an image of the American Adam, um, of, the I of the innocent Adam coming to America, um, a foundling, his past isn't known, his origins. He's not, he's not, he doesn't belong to Europe in that sense, because in Europe you belong to a class. You're with the aristocracy, the landed, you know, the peasant class. You knew your origins and you kept your place. America was created to put that away. But those things should not determine what we make of our lives. Billy's a founding. We don't know his past. He's an image of the um, American Adam. Um, innocent, thinking he's innocent and then finding that something's going to happen to call that innocence into question. 
Um, Melville makes a lot about the differences between civilized men and sailors and people who are less educated. That in the civilized world, people get used to putting on clothes and titles. Look what I've accomplished. I got my PhD in literature. You know, I, I'm a doctor, I'm a psychologist, I'm a lawyer. That very often when people put on those clothes, they don't see that it's keeping them from seeing things. Sailors live at a more primitive level. That's good and bad. As Melfield presents it, he says sailors are generally juvile men. I mean, they're, you know, there's a kind of innocence to them that they share. But he's very aware that um, the civil, civilized world becomes a little bit cunning. It, it's more clever in what it does. And people who are outside of that world are less self-conscious, less given to using their intellects in what they do. Um, very often, you, you are, we already know this, Billy is likened to Hercules, who was the son of Zeus. And just so you know, for, for those of you who don't know the Greek mythology, Hercules is the one god most like Christ. With all the labors and um, son of son of God, son of Zeus, the one in the, the, the following were the church fathers. He was the ones that most resemble Christ. He's likened to Hercules. He's likened his um, Hesperian, the sun god, that he has this brilliant goodness. He has this innate goodness that he brings to everything he does, and it's one of the reasons men love him, and it's one of the reasons why Claggart hates him, because he's so well liked because of his natural abilities, and, and Claggart is not. So he envies him. There's a passage where he says that Claggart wants to love him. There's all this goodness in him. But because of his own pride, he has to put him down. He has to take him down. Um, Vera's educated, well, well educated. He loves studying. He's a very meditative man. He, he gets in these moods where he's, you know, you, you can tell that he's a meditative person. Claggart is well-educated, but it's clear there's a difference between the two. Claggart uses edu his education to advance himself. He uses it as a tool. There's something really demonic. There's some, he's, he's envious. He, he doesn't want to be left behind. He, he wants to get ahead. Veer's approach to his education is far more disinterested. He, he, he brings that to everything he does. The theme of language, we've talked about this. The language of the narrator, I want you to all think about this. If we didn't have the narrator, we'd, we wouldn't have the story. And imagine how the story would come to us if we got it through any of the sailors. This narrator has a sense of the sacred. He constantly talks about something sacramental, the cross. Um, he can see dimensions of meaning and um, that relate to what's going on between um, Billy and Claggart that none of the men, none of the men would see. So um, he, um, he's aware of the fall. He sees its presence in everybody's lives. He understands the importance of language. He knows that Billy's stutter is in some ways a reflection of his innocence, that it's not a good thing. Um, and you know if you've read the story that what gets in the way is his stutter. When Claggart accuses him, he, he can't, he can't get to the words. And because he can't, and the violence builds up in him, he, he strikes out. So this, the role of words in getting past innocence 
is not a small one. Um, it, it goes to some of the most important questions we have about we. It's it's still ahead of us about how we how we read the uh, the execution. But this theme of language, Billy can't. One mark of his innocence is his inability to use words. Okay, let me let me start and go ahead. Okay, I want to give a brief summary of the plot. I want to mention some of the themes that are our focus tonight. And then I want to look at the narrator, and then I want to do some readings. What I do with the narrator goes to technique. You, you know that that's been a concern of mine all along, because too often we read for a theme, and we misread, because we don't see the relationship between a theme and form. And I've been saying all along, the two are inseparable. If you separate a theme from its form, you'll misread. When I'm underlining here again, I want to look at the narrator to show what he does because we can't understand the story apart from him, the way it comes to us through him. Okay, So I'm going to just do a brief summary, look at um, some of the themes, and then I want to look at the narrator. And then I, I want to, I'm going to end with readings on the execution and, and, and then ask the questions you know, that I have. Should Veer have done it? Should Billy have been executed? How do we stand on it? What do we learn from it? What what Smelvis is showing us? Okay. Um, quickly, the um, the summary. This is again very little happens. Almost everything that happens is through the narrator explaining things. So let me try to underscore this, clarify it because it's so important. The whole mode of presentation in this story is expository. It's not dramatic, it's not lyric, we're not getting a first person, we're not getting a lot of dialogue. It's expository. It's a mode of exposition. That's the mode by which the story comes to us. We keep getting the narrator explaining things to us. Is that clear? If it isn't, tell me. Okay? He keeps explaining. The Mariners, Veer, Claggart. We keep getting in their heads. And meanwhile, very little happens. So I, the point I want to underscore, underscore here is, the, you know, we've talked a lot about the plot and the action. The, the, the greater part of the action of Billy Budd is expository. It's in the mind. It's in the mind seeing something going on. So we're going to watch Clagger do things. We'll, watch, we'll see the, tr the um, interrogation when... Um, Veer calls Billy so that Clagger can confront him with his accusations. I mean, but you know, and you know, all of those scenes, there's very little dialogue. You know, men speak to each other. The greater part of what's given to us is expository. It's the narrator describing something or explaining something. So a great part of the action is through the mind. It's the action of the mind dealing with these events. It's very different from Hemingway, and it's crucial to see that, okay? Nikki, you got a question on that? I don't believe you. I do not believe you. <clears throat> okay, so, summary. The last part of the book, from where we left off last time, is where Billy has just talked to the Dansker, 
and the dancer is repeating to him what he learned before. That Claggart, old Jimmy, Jimmy Legs, is after him. Something's wrong. And the dancer, he's a veteran, he's a salt. He's old enough to know something's there. How does he know it? <laughs> we don't know. I mean, my sense is he's got that intuitive sense that veterans have, that you get a read on people and you can see. But it's, it's, it, it goes far beyond what ordinary people think when they think I can read people. You know, you work in a business, you get around. Because what becomes clear from everything that's presented to us is that what this narrator is seeing and what the dancer has some share in is the presence of evil. Their perceptive must to see that something evil is going on. So we're off of surfaces. This is not just about moral actions, you know, going through the motions, doing your job. This is about something underneath that lots of people don't see. So um, Billy talks to them again, and the guy says again, the Jimmy Legs is down on you. Um, and, and then we get those chapters dealing with Claggart, who could have loved Billy except for his envy. And I want to underscore this again because we know from Dante that envy is one of the two great sins in the commercial regime. That wanting to be better than somebody else, the pride of not being left behind or ignored, drives the American people. We want to win. We want to be better than everybody else. That envy is what moves Claggart. Um, it says if he hadn't felt envy, he would have loved him because of Billy's goodness. It's shortly after that that Claggart goes to Veer and accuses Billy. He says that he was involved in a mutiny, and we get those descriptions of Veer distrusting um, Claggart, that he had this sense. There's no, he doesn't have a lot of evidence. He just has some sense from the manner in which Claggart makes this accusation that something's wrong in what he's doing. So once again, we get an instance... I think of a really good reader, of a man who's aware that there's far more going on than meets the eye. He, he knows that something's not quite right. He hears Claggart out and then he asks one of the mates to go get Billy and B Billy is brought into the cabin and it's there that Claggart makes his accusation and Billy has to answer him and at one point he, he, I mean, he can't say anything. He, I cut. I, I know that. I'm, I'm assuming most of us have had moments like that. I, I mean, I, I can remember back. God, I mean, it just, you know, you're faced with some struggle or some challenge. It doesn't even have to be. It can be in a class, or in a conference. You know, where you have to be dealing with a um, something, a presentation, and you realize that's not right, and you're so caught up in what you believe is the wrong of that thing. And it's, it's as if it overwhelms you. you. You can't find the words. You're so overwhelmed by your feelings. Billy's caught in that moment for a moment. And finally, when he can't do anything, he strikes out and hits him and kills him. That's it. <claps> Done. With all this exposition that's been going on for 60 pages by that time, all this detail, it comes down to two men standing next to each other, one man accusing the other, and the other man just striking out and killing him. Not intending. Just... Helpless to answer. Um, Veer chooses three men, the lieutenant, uh, um, 
the captain of the Marines and the sailing master to serve on a summary court and Billy's taken away and they have the hearing among themselves. Veer, who's the captain, does everything can to make clear what he believes are the things they have to consider in their deliberations. And after he makes those, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into this, I'm just trying to summarize it right now. After he makes his deliberations, he walks away and lets them in de deliberate and then they come to this conclusion that um, Billy's guilty and under martial law, which is the law of the time, um, there's only one sentence for him to be executed. They talk about, there's some talk about waiting until the ship returns to the fleet so the Admiral can be involved, but Veer thinks um, that's not the wisest thing to do at that time. Um, Billy's convicted. Um, he's asked to come in and stand his accuser, so he's doing what didn't happen in some of the trials in some of the earlier mutinies. Some of the, some of the earlier mutinies, people were accused of things, and they had no chance to answer their accusers. Horrible wrong. By the way, that's where I think it's our fourth, 14th Amendment. Bill of Rights are that we we have a right to answer our accusers. That was fundamental to our absolutely fundamental to our constitution. If if anybody's accused of something, he has to step back and let that man answer his accusations. To go, I mean, think about what's going on for the last couple of years politically. The mobs that have formed about wanting to accuse somebody and not give them um, the right to answer. Um, so Billy's given that right, he's brought in, he says um, very calmly that he didn't mean to kill Claggart, that um, Claggart was wrong in what he said and he had no other way to answer and because he couldn't speak he struck out. And that's it. I mean the men trying to do everything they can to help but they can't and um, he, he's, lead, he lead, he's taken away and left and the judgment is pronounced and you know that the next day he's executed. All the ship um, are called um, to stand in formation as they watch Billy Budd executed and then the funeral is performed and he's put in a coffin and, and the formalities of um, the coffin being dropped into the sea is observed and that's it. Um, it ends with a couple of chapters that to me are extremely important. One of them is, is a chapter about a naval chronicler, um, it's like a newspaper, Gazette, that published an article showing that Claggart was this upstanding, self-sacrificing officer in the service of the British Army um, who was maliciously stabbed by this man who, who was the ringleader, ringleader of a mutiny. So that's the fake news. That's the image we're left with. Um, there's a murmuring on the part of the men on the ship. It's quieted. And there's this one young foretop man who writes this ballad. That's, that's the story, and it ends with the poem that I began with, um, Billy and the um, Darbys. Let me just offer a couple of themes, and then I want to just take a minute with the, with the, uh, with the technique, what, what uh, Melville's doing with the narrator. Some of the most important themes, it seems to be, Billy Budd is naturally good. Um, if we look at Moby Dick, we read it, and compare it to Billy Budd, there's a, a radical difference in this sense, that in Billy Budd, Melville is making it clear that natural goodness is possible. 
when you know that Ahab was struggling against this idea from Calvin that man's depraved, that all men are inherently evil, depraved, and their 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 um, ultimate end is already predestined. They have no free will. Those are essential to Calvin. Those are fundamental to his beliefs. In Billy Budd, he's giving us an image of a guy who is completely good, innocent as he presents him. And I, I don't want to answer this question, but it's Billy Budd. He's a bud. One of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, does he ever become a flower? Does he ever reach his maturity? Does he bloom? Is everybody clear on that? He's Billy Budd. He's innocent. He's unflowered. Um, how do we look at Billy at the end? Does he become a flower? If so, is it by his own volition? Is it something he did or something beyond him? How do we look at this bud? Okay. So from the beginning, we've been looking at this innocent kid, this handsome sailor. It's an image of the, of the American Adam, this innocent man. The question of art. At the end, when all these proceedings take place, there's this murmuring that has to be quieted. Veer, this is really important, Veer keeps calling the company, the ship's company, to, to orders. Drum beats, lieutenants. Whistles. Sorry? Whistles. Yeah, whistles. Um, be, because he makes clear that there's this murmur, there's this sound, there's this, the inarticulate beginnings of a disruption, maybe even a mutiny, because Billy is one of theirs, and he's been executed, and he has to quiet it. And he has that comment about form. I don't want to go to it now, but he talks about form, and he says in poetry, you can complete a poem by the form you give it. But in real life, it's not as easy to give it form. I think what Melville's saying is it's absolutely crucial to give it form. Because if we don't have form in our life and we're left formless at the, at the mercy of our emotions, we're in trouble. Because our emotions tend to be formless. They just direct us and very often not in good ways. So this whole question of art Melville gave us the story. A captain is trying to do what he can to give form and order um, exactly at those moments when people seem ready to become violent or disruptive, you know, as, as in the mutinies. So keep in mind the analogy between those two things, between life and poetry, between life and art, how important it is to learn to give order to our emotions. You know that it's been one of the things that I've been hitting you over the head with forever, how important poetry is, that it, it helps us to learn to order our emotions, that, that if we're left to our emotional life without help, our emotional life can sometimes become overwhelming. It could just take us over. Um, the theme of pity, the theme of pity. It's been one of the great themes from the very beginning, from the absolute beginning of our work. One of the turning points in the Iliad takes place when Patroclus says to Achilles, if you're not going to, heartless man, pitiless man, if you're not going to go out and fight this war, let me put on your armor. And you remember, Achilles says to him, go, but don't go to the wall. And Homer's line is pity. Pity, it overcame him. 
Patroclus cannot stop himself in the war. He goes to the battle and he's killed. He goes to the walls and he's killed. He let his pity for the suffering of his companions become greater than it should have been. So he saw early on Homer's critique of pity. We know from Aristotle, writing after Homer, he's learning from Homer, that the two greatest emotions in tragedy that have to be um, purified, that's the word I'm, purified, the catharsis that takes place, the purification, are pity and fear. He said that the two driving emotions of tragedy are pity and fear. That in great tragedy, a moment comes when, there, when a turn takes place and they're answered. Because pity and fear can paralyze us. Right? Let me, and I, I've been doing this from the beginning. Let's go to our own families. If we become too afraid that something's going to happen, very often we get locked in. We're just afraid to be honest about things, let's say. No, let's not go to our own families. No, I'm going to go to our own families. I'm going to, I'm going to go there. I'm not going to get personal, but... Don't do it, Bob. No, I am sorry. Sorry, I'm going to. Don't. Whoever's online, just mute yourself for a second. Who's That's that? Jolie. Jolie, no. That very often, what we've got to do in ourselves, what, whether it's in our families or politically, it doesn't matter. That the two greatest emotions that we have to deal with are pity and fear. That sometimes our pity for somebody else can have such an effect that it paralyzes us. We get arrested. We become enablers. I mean, the, the, the great, the, 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 I think the focus of problems in therapeutic communities for people who, you know, struggle with drinking or alcohol or pornography or sex or whatever it is, we have got to learn to deal with pity and fear. Those are the emotions that most arrest us to get free of them. How do we do that? Aristotle's answer was tragedy helps us. The literature helps us get by those things. That we need help because they're so natural they're so natural, they're so easy to give in to. Dante picked it up. If you remember the Dante, the Divine Comedy, pity drove Dante through the whole thing. Um, he felt sorry for Francisca, and he fainted. Dante's critiquing it. He fainted. Um, when he gets to the end, um, some critic, remember he kicks the guy who, who, and he, who, who is in hell. Most critics say that... Um, Dante's performing the same sin as the sinners, and I think they've got it wrong. When Dante comes to the Lake of Sticks and, and he pushes the guy down, we talked about this. Um, Virgil's response was, blessed is he, blessed is he who gave you birth. Because it's the first time that Dante has not felt sorry for a sinner. And allegorically what we're seeing is that moment when the soul turns away from feeling sorry for somebody to stand with God. It doesn't mean being cruel or mean. It just means not being overcome by pity. Um, let me stop for a minute. Is, is everybody clear on the difference between pity and love? We've talked about this forever. Say again, the pity and love? Pity and love, yeah. What They, they look alike. They're often confused. What's the difference? Here, let me jump in. Does love, does love make a condition and pity doesn't? Well, no, love is unconditional. So. I was going to say it would be the opposite, yeah. Okay. Pity, pity is the feeling we have for somebody in their suffering with whom we identify. 
That is, we're so, it's like somebody, it's like a, a, a woman talking with a woman with whom she's identifying because of whatever it is. And so identifying with the suffering of that person that you become one with it. Love. Empathy. Well, wait, hold on. Love is different because love has its end, the good of that person. So pity can be enabling. It can do things that are not good for that person. Let's say a, a mother's enabling her son, you know, when he when she should get tougher with him, something. Love means you're you're more concerned about the good of that person. And if we think of Christ, it doesn't mean beating up that person. It just means that good is what directs us. So that we, from from Christ's perspective, we have to learn to put away ourself. So that whatever we do is for the good of that person. We're not enabling. So here, so, Iliad, the Divine Comedy, Moby Dick. Remember that Ahab's power over that whole crew came because of their pity, self-pity. They also identified with suffering because Melville's, I mean Ahab, remember, was wounded by that whale. That he appealed to everybody's sense of being a victim. And everybody jumped on board of that quest right away. Even even Ishmael, he said, I'm more than anybody. So our, the dangers of self-pity, of, of making our sorrows for suffering, can sometimes prevent us from getting beyond it to something good. Until we have faces, Lewis, a modern. If you remember the story, I know, I know Sue does, because she said it's a favorite, um, one of her favorites. is Remember that Oriole... Um, has a vision of the of a divine glory, a divine love, but she's so envious of her sisters. She's so proud that she can't admit it. She hides under a mask, and the and the end of the the end of the novel takes the form of Psyche having to go to the Deadlands. That is, die, she has to give up her own life, go to the Deadlands to bring back a new life, and the last temptation, if I remember, I may have this wrong, the last temptation was Oriole saying, don't do this. It was, And the danger was pitying her sister, that she would have felt so bad with her sister that she wouldn't have been able to go on. So the greatest temptation was getting past the pity she felt for her sister to do what was harder. Because sometimes to do that makes you look cruel and unpitying or unkind. So the question here, in so, so remember we've we've been looking at this all along. It's not a small thing. What what's our what's the appropriate feeling for Billy? Pity? Was he unjustly executed, or was it just? I, I don't want to get. I don't want to answer that. I'm trying to go through themes and pick things out. This is one of the things we've got to keep in my mind when we look at Billy. He's executed. We all know he's innocent. How do we stand on that? Um, with respect to our pity and with any sense of justice. How, how do we reconcile? That's been one of the great themes of our work together. Um, what would have happened if, if Billy had been delayed, if they had not executed him? I, I don't want answers. I'm just raising themes that this whole question of justice. What would have happened if they had delayed and kept Billy locked up? What would the response of the crew been, given all the mutinies that have been going on, and their identity with him, that he was one of them. 
The question. I'm the, just thinking online. Wait, wait, wait! I don't want to. I don't want to. Wait, wait, wait! If you can, um, Jolie, wait! Yeah. I'm just. I want to. I want to get to this. These are just questions that I want everybody to hold on to before we get to them. The 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 theme of natural law and divine law. There's that one point where the where the narrator is describing what's going on with Veer, and Veer is making a decision according to natural law, knowing that Billy's innocent, and saying that he's trusting that at the end times God will see Billy innocent. So he's aware of a difference between the demands of natural law under the circumstances and divine law. Okay? That God will vindicate him. But under the circumstances, given what's going on and the law, um, and given what Billy did, the appropriate responses the execution so this tension between natural law and divine law and let me try to let me try to sharpen the focus because these are things we have to think about remember in scarlet letter that the scarlet letter was a theocracy the laws under which they lived were divine laws they did not recognize natural laws hester showed that she was damned she was among the wrong because of her um, illegitimate child the is is the Muslim world does the same under a theocracy. The laws under which people live are holy laws. So if a man steals something when he shouldn't, it, in their mind it can justify chopping the man's hand off. The West has always made a distinction between the natural law tradition and the divine, the sacramental, while knowing there's um, an analogy, a continuity between them but also a difference, okay? So this tension between those two orders of law. The sacramental and the, and the, and the natural. When Veer and Billy meet, um, they go in and Veer confides to him and Melville's, I'm going to read it. Mel's, the, the, the narrator's description, description of that meeting, when he said, there was nothing, nothing more sacramental, sacramental than what took place in that in that embrace between the two men. Billy loved Veer, Veer loved Billy. It was absolutely outside of time and space as men knew it. And his description for it was sacramental. When he talks about the spar at the end, the, the post from, from which Billy was hung, he talks about it in holy terms. He said the men reverenced it. It became a relic. So that pieces of that spar were things that men wanted. So Millville keeps, and, and you know, I'm not wanting to go there yet, but you know that when Billy is hung, the, the description of him is like Christ on the crucifixion. He's taking the dawn, that at the moment when he's crucified, that, I mean, sorry, when he's executed, <laughs> we're supposed to see an, a reenactment in Christ's crucifixion. The dawn comes and things happen. I, I want to wait on that. So these, those are some of the most important themes um, you know that so much of this comes through the narrator. So that what I'm suggesting is that it's really impossible to separate these themes from the way they're presented from the narrator. We get it all through him. Um, and I think on that, let me just add one more thing and then I want to do the readings. I want to go to Billy's trial and execution, and so we have some time to talk about that. You know that when Veer goes in to meet Billy, 
and he comes out of the room, the surgeon's there, and the surgeon looks at him with doubt, and he says, he has this this question in his mind, whether Veer isn't unhinged. That's his word. Because he's not sure that what Veer did was the wisest thing to do. Okay. And and the narrator repeats that a number of times that the that the surgeon has this question about um, the rightness of what Veer did. So once again, we're getting the narrator giving us multiple perspectives: the shipmen, how they look at it, the officers, the surgeon, who's a scientist, and it's crucial to hold that in mind. He's a scientist. After the execution, the surgeon and the purser are talking. And um, I want to look at this just for a second because we're getting close on time. I would have waited, but I want to get to this now. The two of them are talking, and the purser, this is on chap, the very beginning of chapter 6, 20, you don't have to go there, but if you, the beginning of 26, um, what testimony to the force lodged in willpower, the latter surmise, spare and tall, one in whom a discreet causticity went along with a manner less genial than polite, replied, your pardon, Mr. Purser, in a hanging scientifically conducted and under special orders, I myself directed how Bud was to be affected. Any movement following the com- completed suspension and originating in the body, just like a modern intellectual, <clears throat> in the body suspended, such movement indicates mechanical spasm in the muscular. God, it just drives me nuts when doctors do this. When doctors do that, I want to leave the office. <laughs> um, I always say to them, speak English to me. Would you talk, you know? Um, hence the absence that is no more attributed to willpower, as you call it, than to horsepower, begging your pardon. Now they're going to disagree in a minute, and the surgeon is going to get up and walk away. Now hold on. What's at issue, in case it wasn't clear, is this. When a man is hung, ordinarily, he can't hold his bowels. In a hanging, he's hung, and it's a commonplace for his bowels to give out. They just release. There's a mess made. His body releases. How can it not? In Billy's case, it didn't happen. And the purser is remarking that fact, and in some sense saying it had something to do with willpower. And the, the scientist, the surgeon, saying, no, no. So what he does is describe it, and he doesn't argue. He just says it has nothing to do with it and walks away because he's disgusted. One of the questions that we have to answer in our discussion about this, because Billy's going to be executed, and when he is, he's described as participating in the crucifixion with Christ. He takes the dawn, a light comes from him. Before he's executed, his last words are, God bless Captain Fear. And he dies. And there's no incontinence. And the scientist doesn't even want to try. He's disgusted and walked away. So we've got these multiple perspectives on all of this that Melville's giving us to help us understand what's going on, okay? Now with all of that having to do with the, you know, the, the setup, what I'm calling the exposition, the mode of exposition that, that Melville uses, I want to look at just a, a couple of scenes um, when, um, when Claggart confronts Billy and then the execution itself and then I've got these questions and I'm sorry we're so late but let me hopefully we can do this and on page 
Veer has heard Claggart. And it's clear from the narrator that Veer is suspicious of his manner, his spirit. He's an experienced man. He's got no evidence on which to question him. He's not seen anything that would lead him to doubt him. But there's something in the way that he does things that makes it suspect. So he finally says, call the man. Billy's brought to his quarters and the two confront each other. This is in the middle of, of pay, or chapter 19, a few paragraphs in a page in. Claggart accuses him of mutiny, and you, we already know that one man came to tempt Billy into a mutiny, and it so upset him he couldn't, he couldn't speak, he stuttered. But he was so angry, he told the guy to get away. And that's why he went to the dancer to get some sense, because he just doesn't have a sense of things. Claggart accuses him, and Billy can't speak. He, he can't find the words. Veer, who trusts Billy, who has a sense of his predicament, says, Speak, man, said Captain Veer to the transfixed one, struck by his aspect even more than by Claggart. Speak, defend yourself, which appeal caused but a strange dumb gesturing and gurgling in Billy. Amazement is such accusation. So suddenly sprung on an inexperienced non-age, this and it may be horror of the accuser's eyes, serving to bring out his lurking defect, and in this instance for the time, intensifying it into a convulsed tongue-tie, while the intent head and entire form strained forward in an agony of ineffectual eagerness to obey the injunction to speak and defend himself. Gave an expression to the face like that of a condemned vestal priestess, <coughs> that is a sacrificial priestess, in the moment of being buried alive and in the first struggle against suffocation. In that moment, um, Veer says, there's no hurry, my boy, take your time, take your time. Contrary to the effect intended, these words so fatherly in tone, doubtless touching Billy's heart to the quick, prompted yet more violent efforts at utterance, efforts soon ending for the time at confirming the paralysis and bringing to his face an expression which was as a crucifixion to behold, the next instant, quick as the flame from a discharged cannon at night, his right arm shot, shot out, and Claggart dropped to the deck. He's dead. Veer's response in the next page, it's the divine judgment on Ananias. And then he says, um, in a couple of paragraphs later, Veer was now again motionless, stand, standing absorbed in thought against Starting, he vehemently exclaims, struck dead by an angel of God, yet the angel must hang. Now, you know, I, we don't have to kind of the time to go into the court proceedings. I'm sorry we don't. But you know that, that Veer calls the men that he believes will be the most mature to be involved in a decision of this magnitude, the lieutenant, um, the soldier at arms, the master, who has direct experience with a man and another man. And he expresses the concerns he has of a captain that, um, that if they don't act, there's a danger given the mutinies that have taken place, um, that the men will see it as a temptation to um, rouse. We know from everything that's been said up to this point the, that the men are are... They're very obedient. They go along with protocol. But underneath that protocol, they have this sense of agitation. Um, um, they're, they're, they're quick to feel 
anything unjust or uh, deserving of complaint or so Veer makes raises expresses those concerns and when am I missing anything any can you think of anything any of his other arguments that I'm missing right now the earth argument yeah he 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 makes clear to the board the the jury the summary court that he has no question about Billy's guilt or innocence. I love his kind of just, it's, I wish we had more time, um, where he says um, that he has no question about Billy's innocence. Um, that's not his question. Um, on page 50, a couple pages in on 21, the narrator says, but though a conscientious disciplinarian, he was no lover of authority for mere authority. This is not for his own ego. He wants to do what's right. Um, um, I got I to, I got to, sorry, I got to excuse myself for a minute. I'm really sorry. I'll be right back. I don't know if you want to read that on that page, Tom. Which one? The bottom of the left. <clears throat> I don't know what he was looking for. Oh, he's talking about... Um, what he has to face as um, a court in, in this life. Um, before a court less arbitrary and more merciful than a martial one, that plea would largely extenuate, which that Billy's innocent. Um, and Does the military court have uh, involuntary manslaughter? Um, they do when it's not a time of war, but this is a time of war. Got it. Um, so he says, and before a court less arbitrary and more merciful than a martial one, that plea would largely extenuate. At the last assize, that's that's yeah. the last judgment, it shall acquit. Good. That's the one I wanted. That is, he's confident that um, they can't play the role of God. Um, there's a difference between divide law and natural law. He has no doubt that, that Billy would be acquitted. Um, I'm and that's the that's the one I was looking for. The other line that I wanted to read um, um, it's the one in which he describes the meeting between the two and describes it in terms of a sacrament. Um, I'm not I'm not going to get to it right now, but that's where Veer and Billy right. It's a beautiful, um, anyway, the, the, you know it'll happen. Billy will be convicted. The, the court will um, agree that he, it's because of martial law and the circumstances they have to convict him. In the execution, this is what's described. Um, I wanted, and I want to describe this because it's, it's so important. Um, the night before the execution, this is on, in chapter 25, the night so luminous on the spar deck but otherwise on the cavernous ones below, 
Levels so like the tiered galleries in a coal mine, the luminous night passed away, but like the prophet in the chariot disappearing in heaven and dropping his mantle to Elisha, the withdrawing night transferred its pale robe to the breaking day. It's almost as if something holy is going on. And you know that after the execution, when Billy's dropped into the sea, the birds circle around, but they don't go after him. Something, it's a little bit like the ending of Moby Dick. Something's happening. Um, the next morning, at the morning, when the sun comes up, or it's about to come up, Billy is prepared for the execution. The chaplain has already spoken to him, but in ways that make it clear um, that any appeals to scripture will be useless. Um, um, his, his, his way of describing it, out of natural courtesy he received but did not appropriate, it was like a gift placed in the palm of an outreached hand upon which the fingers do not close. <coughs> he likens it to a missionary going to the tropics and trying to convert a savage. That you're at cross purposes. The people have no idea what you're talking about. Billy's got this natural goodness, but appeals to scripture are not going to speak to him. So he does what he can to prepare him for his death, and then the morning comes. The chaplain is there. This is at the very end of 25. It was noted at the time and remarked upon afterwards that in this final scene, the good man evinced little or nothing of a perfunctory. Brief speech indeed he had with the condemned one, but the, gen, but the genuine gospel was less on his tongue than in his aspect and manner towards him. The final preparations personal to the latter being speedily brought to an end by two boatsmen's mates, the consummation impeded. Bilty stood facing aft. At the penultimate moment, his words, his only words, wholly unobstructed in the utterance. The first time in his life facing an ordeal, he does not stutter. So at the beginning of the ordeal, he does not stutter. At the end, he's not incontinent. His bowels hold. At the penultimate moment, his words, the only ones, words holy and obstructed in the utterance were these, God bless Captain Veer. Syllables so unanticipated coming from one with the ignominious hemp around his neck, a conventional felon's benediction directed aft towards the quarter of honor. Syllables too delivered in the clear melody of a singing bird on the point of launching from the twig. Had a phenomenal effect not unenhanced by the rare personal beauty of the young sailor, spiritualized now through late experiences so poignantly profound. Um, as soon as the crew hears it, it's almost like a choir echoing. The whole ship give utterance as if they're one with Billy and say, God bless Captain Veer. And yet at that instant, Billy alone must have been in their hearts, even as in their eyes. At the pronounced words and the spontaneous echo that vol voluminous rebounded them, Captain Veer, either through stoic self-control or a sort of momentary paralysis induced by emotional shock, stood erectly rigid at a musket, at just as a musket in Iraq. The hull, deliberately recovering from a periodic roll to leeward, was just regaining an even keel when the last signal a preconcerted dumb one was given. At the same moment it chanced that the vapory fleece hanging low in the east was shot through with a soft glory as of the fleece of the Lamb of God 
seen in mystical vision and simultaneously therewith watched by the wedged mass of upturned faces, Billy ascended and ascending took the full rose of the dawn. So just when the lanyard pulls him up for his execution, it's described in terms of Christ ascending in the crucifixion. An opinion figure arrived at the yard end to the wonder of all. No motion was apparent, none save that created by the slow roll of the hull in moderate weather, so majestic in a great ship pon ponderously cannon. I've already talked about the, the, uh, the murmur you know, coming up from the men and the way Veer has to enforce order and calls them to try to quiet things. But So the, I mean, the real question we have um, at the center of this is, what do we say about Billy's death? Is it just? Is it right? Was Veer right in doing it? Um, and I, and I'd, I'd like to do, I'd like to take this question if I can in two parts. I'm asking everybody, not your personal opinions for a moment. I'm asking everybody to, to read the way that I've been asking everybody to read, to get past our personal feelings, to look at the form of a work, whatever this form is saying, the, the, the thing. So it's like St. Augustine saying, sorry, St. Thomas saying, the most important thing for us is to see what's there, whether we like it or not, to see what's there. Um, what, what does the form say? My first question, I've got a twofold question. What does the form say? Was it just or not? What is, what is Melville showing us? Why did he tell this story? Is, and, and, and along with that, why did he tell the story about Billy Budd? Does it go beyond Ishmael? What is he showing us in this story that's peculiar to it with respect to this question of justice or love? Or That's the first. The second is, what do you feel about it? <laughs> okay, But I want the first one first. Objectively, what's there? What do we, what do we take away from the story? What is Melville giving us that, that seems to be speaking to something peculiarly American at a time of war, at a time when lawlessness was intense and um, out of control. Twofold question. Carl, what's your thoughts? Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, we can. Good. Um, what is presented to us is that given the laws and the times, justice was served. The question is, were those the right laws in the right time? Did, did the captain do everything he could have done to perhaps temper the judgment that he came to? and perhaps arrive at a, um, a conclusion that was different than what he came to, was in compliance with the law, maybe it just took a little more time. Anybody else? Yeah. Um, Sorry, the laws of man are flawed. Um, good things can happen to, or bad things can happen to good people. 
uh, it was an unfortunate set of events and justice was done. But at the end, there's God's law and there's man's law. And they're entirely different. Entirely? Yeah. God's law is final. Man's law depends on what kind of lawyer you get. <laughs> well, let me, let, me, let me try to be a little bit more subtle about that then. According, Who do you recommend? Wait, wait, wait. Let me try to answer. Let me, the, let me try to, I want to ask a question of Mark, entirely different. The Catholic tradition, I mean, it's not one a lot of Catholics know today, is that um, natural law, which should govern us, has its roots in divine law. Now, you know from, if you've been paying attention for the last, that one of the fundamental questions that Plato asks in the Republic is, this, this is the argument between the two men. One of them in Thrasymics says, justice is the power of those most in control, who have control, so they can determine what's just. So according to his argument, wait, let me finish. According to his argument, justice is arbitrary. It's conventional. Whoever has control would determine what's just. His argument is that justice is an ordering of the soul with the order of God. So that's pre-Christ, Okay, but it's philosophic. In the philosophic tradition, the understanding is, I mean, it goes from Plato and Aristotle into um, Augustine and Thomas, is that natural law is not like conventional law because conventional law can be made up by bad people. So we can have, bad, we can have laws enforcing abortion or allowing abortion or slavery. But according to natural law, we could never do anything like that because in natural law, our laws are rooted in God, and it's on that basis that we can resist slavery or we can resist abortion. So natural law and divine law are not entirely different. They're actually congruent. But it takes somebody with a wisdom to see that connection who can make good laws. So... I'm just saying there, there's another way to look at the different one. Somebody can say they're entirely different. Somebody can also say in, if you had that understanding, they're congruent. And I, don't, and I think most of us know very few people understand that today, unfortunately. But, but it's on that basis that people are, are opposing abortion or bad laws. Sue, did you have, you've got something. You look like you're... I guess, I mean, what I was thinking when you asked the question was that in the context of the, of the situation, it was a necessary end, deemed that way by people who are imperfect, who tried, according, you know, our narrator gave us good insight into the people, but still they deemed that it was necessary. And in the end, Billy actually agreed because he knew Veer had done what he did out of his heart. So I don't like it. <laughs> um, I don't agree with that as being in sync with divine law. But given the circumstances, the logic was there. I just. And in some ways, the faith was there because Beer thinks in the end it'll all be okay because that'll make it right. 
So, I want to ask two. In some ways, I, in some ways, I think it's a cop out. You, you asked for for our own personal views, and my view too is that it's a bit of a cop out, even though he doesn't try to do that. He tries to do the best he can. Yeah. Let me ask this another way, two ways. Susanna and I were talking about this earlier, and I, um, I, um, I think we'll pick up here next week when we have this open-ended sort of free-for-all. But one of the question, one of the one of the great themes that we've been dealing with all all of our time together is this tension between justice and mercy. Justice and mercy. Is there any mercy present in Billy and his response to Veer? Is there any mercy in Veer in his response to Billy? That's one way of putting it, but let me just hold on for your answer. The other question I want to ask that's related to that is this, um, and I know it's a sort of silly way to come at it, but I, I don't know how else to get at it. Is there something good to come from Billy's execution? And let me put this a number of different ways because I, I don't want to get a, you know, I, I, I just don't think a black-white answer is going to answer this. Is there something good to come from it? What would have happened? What is, what is Melville trying to show us? And in presenting the story in which an innocent man is executed, even though he's, well, on the one hand, he's innocent. He's a good man. On the other hand, he's absolutely guilty. In a court of law today, outside of the naval arena, he'd, he'd be charged with manslaughter. Whether he intended or not, he killed a man. That's a manslaughter ground. In wartime, it's a question of whether or not, it, you know, I mean, the subtleties between a manslaughter and death is, but... But I, I don't want to go there. My question is a little bit different. Is What is Melville showing us? What does he want us to see by having Billy executed? What if he had not... Because I think almost all of us as human beings have a pity. We feel sorry when somebody's going to suffer, particularly if we think somebody's undeserving. None of us wants to see somebody undeserving punished. In our Christian faith, we believe that none of us is undeserving. We all believe... If I think if we're being honest, every one of us... Well, hold on. The gospel reading the last week was the king. The guy comes to the king, and the king's response is, I'm going to sell you. This is king. This is God. I'm going to sell you so you can pay all your debts. There's no way that man can pay his debts. None. It's an image of God saying to us, we're fallen. Our first act was unjust. We live in, in injustice, undeserving. Christ didn't come to us because we were deserving. He came because we were un undeserving. We needed help. But the condition for getting the pardon from the king is the man saying, be patient with me. He doesn't do it with other people, and that's why he's brought back. But the condition for receiving it is he acknowledged it. We begin every Mass, we begin every mass with an act of contrition. What happens to people when they don't feel contrite? And we saw that in Dante's Hell. The difference between hell and purgatory was the people in purgatory knew they were wrong and wanted help. Billy's response to um, Veer isn't to say, you're treating me unjustly, you, uh, you bad man. He says, God bless you. So my question is, is there something Melville is trying to show us? And keep Ishmael in mind. Remember at the end of Moby Dick, Ishmael survives. He survives. And he's learned to love goodness. And he brings this whole, the tragic part of it with Ahab and the goodness. Everything he's learned to love in the world that made him turn away from Ahab's quest. He survives. 
20 years later, Melville, after not writing any narrative for almost 30 years, writes this novel about this young, extraordinary, beautiful kid who impulsively, unintentionally, kills a man. Who's accused him of So it's not like he didn't, I mean, struck out. He got angry, killed him. According to Marshall Launder, at the time of war times, he's liable to execution. What is Melville showing us along Christian lines? Billy, Billy is shown taking the rise as a Christ figure. What he's showing us about, the only way that I know how to put it is, what, what will we lose if Billy got off or it was manslaughter? Is there something to be seen here for us that has to do with innocence and justice that's not easy to see, if I can put it that way? Well, one thing that I, from the beginning, uh, really didn't see uh, evil. Didn't see the evil in, uh, I can't. Tiger, right, right. Uh, he didn't see that evil. Sorry, Kathy, can you step forward a little bit? Because we're getting an echo. Just. Uh, yeah, I hear um, the He um, didn't see the evil and curse. He talked to the Dansby, right. and he kept warning him about the evil. He also didn't see the evil in himself. We talked about flawed as stutter, but temper was what really killed the man. Not at stutter. <laughs> and so he wasn't able to recognize that possibility in himself, much less in the outer world. And the Clankard are, are, you know, you he didn't see it. Uh, he had this innocence are you that uh, he I mean, held I on to. I just want to get you, yeah. It, that he held on to that uh, was naive. And at one point, when he was questioned by Vera, and he said, I couldn't speak, so I struck out. God help me. And so I think that we see where he's acknowledging uh, the evil as a point. Or something flawed, if no, not evil. Yeah. 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 Acknowledging the flaw yeah. in himself and others. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that. And I just, I'm, I, I, I wanted to jump in. Because in a, in a Calvinistic world, that would have been seen as evil. But I think in Billy's case, I think we're safe in saying it was a flaw. You know, it's, oh. you know Claggart's evil. Billy's right. not. But Billy's no. got, a, Billy's got a, a serious flaw. With, with all of his goodness, there's something... But wait, wait. How would you answer this? Go, go back. I mean, I'm glad for what you said. How would you answer this? Billy's a bud. Right. Does he flower? How, how do you I, see him, Kathy? How do you what? He flowered when he said, "God help me." I think at that point he went from being the naive boy hmm. to the yeah. Maybe. It's <laughs> a good. Anybody else? Doug. No. No, honestly. No. Nikki. No, come on. 
Jolie, where are you? They may have left. I don't know. <laughs> That's after 8.30. I'm at L.A. Burger because I can't go home yet. Good <laughs> <laughs> uh, burgers. I love Whataburgers. Burger King and Whataburgers. Francis. Kimchi tater tots from L.A. Burger. Francis. Francis. Come on. What's your mind? I really would like to hear your mind. Francis. Don't look at don't look at that guy. Come on. What's your response? Is this is was the execution just or not? How do you look at it? Um Jolie says no. I'm not sure I, I don't know that Captain Vera had a choice given the situation that had happened before and he did kill I mean, um, now um, because I mean you know when were they going to be get to the Admiral I mean what were they going to put him in jail and keep him in, in jail on the ship till he got to the Admiral or um well, I, I, I think it was a very hard decision, but I think he he felt like, given the situation that had happened before, he had to take show he was in command of the ship. Um, I don't know. <laughs> That's all I have. <laughs> He's also trying to, I mean, remember the circumstances are, we've heard the murmuring, I mean, a couple of times there was this, Sort of unnatural murmuring of the inclination of people to um, rise up to become vindictive or um, violent or it's yeah. war. It's it's the the situation. The circumstances are war. They're at war. So one thing does reminds me of. Oh, I've got this echo. Um, I kept thinking of when Christ, when the priest says. Well, we have to kill the one man to save the nation, save save our nation. And I keep thinking of Verdi saying, well, you know, we, we have to sacrifice him, even though I know he's innocent. And I love him. He has to be sacrificed for the good of the ship and the man and the war. Boy, I have, I have real trouble with that, Kathy. It, um, well, I, I mean, I just No, 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 no. I, I'm glad you brought it up. It's a, it's a really good parallel. Um, I, if if somebody were asked me my question, I were to answer it. I'd say, I I think Billy carries a mercy into his response. He loves fear. I mean, he he believe he believes that fear is doing the right thing. That he he, he understands. And I really believe that that fear carries a mercy towards him. I can see I can see captains like like Pilate or Herod doing that out of expediency purely. I don't think that's what's going on with Veer. I, I couldn't find that passage where, where the, the um, where the narrator describes the moment as sacramental. He said that no, no sacrament had been greater. This is just after the two had met. Um, in in private, and they embraced. He describes it in terms of a sacrament. Um, God bless it, and I've got it in my notes somewhere. Um, and um, Veer, Veer says when Billy's defending himself, you know, in the 
in the trial. Um, I didn't intend to do it. And and Veer acknowledges. I mean, he knows. He knows. He he recognizes Bill. So it's not like it's not like Pilate or Herod with Christ, who have no sense of who that is. They're they're just at a political level, doing what's expedient for them. I don't think that's true for Veer. I I think he really suffers this. So um, he's doing a hard hard thing that he would rather not have to do, but given the circumstances, he knows that if he doesn't, it puts everybody at risk. So there's a parallel with Pilate and Herod, but I think there's also a difference. And the other thing is that he, um, Veer carries that with him all of his life. When he dies, the last words he breathes are, Billy Bud, Billy Bud. He loves that kid, you know, and I think he suffered it. So I would say that me, I would say that Billy is like Christ, in the, particularly in the way he's described, it, he's innocent and he has to die this death. And I would say in lots of ways. And by by the way, you all know that the word veer means truth. That's that's what you know. That's the allegory that um, Melville's playing with. I think veer is Christ-like in some ways. He's trying to uphold a law, um, but he loves. He, he never doesn't love the boy. Oh, here, the beginning of chapter twenty-two. Just let me read this. That's what I've been. Thanks, Doc. This is chapter 22. Um, Even more may have been. Captain Veer and N may have developed a passion sometime late and under an exterior stoical or indifferent. Because he's been, you know, I mean, here we, Mel, the narrators let us know. People are always critical of superiors. Always. They're always going to, we, we rebel against authority. All, all of us do. It's, it's in our fault. And we tend to find fault with those people over us because we, and we have to do things that we'd rather not do. And he even says that, that, that um, one of his arguments is lots of men go into war when they don't want to. They have to do the will of their superior when they don't want to. That, that it's a matter of war. If they, if they had their choice, they wouldn't do it. If you're in the Marines and some sort, some stupid, let's make it worse, some stupid sergeant says, take that hill. You're going you're gonna to die for a guy whose opinion you don't have any respect for at all. That's just a matter of warfare. That's a condition of war. Captain Veer, in many ways, had developed the passion sometimes late and under an exterior stoical or indifferent. He, may, he was old enough to have been Billy's father. The austere devotee of military duty letting himself melt back into what remains primeval in our formalized humanity, may in end have caught Billy to his heart, even as Abraham may have caught young Isaac on the brink of resolutely offering him up in obedience to the exacting behest. What father wants to give his son over to death? And yet God asked the son to do that, and Christ willingly and there are oftentimes, I think, in our life that lots of us face moments when we don't want to do something, when we have to in obedience or in a trust. He's likening him to Abraham. But there's, here's, the, here's the line I wanted to focus on. So he's likening him to Abraham at that moment, giving up his son, even though he doesn't want to. But there's no telling the sacrament, seldom, if in any case revealed to the gadding world, this world that always wants to have fun, the basis on which it judges everything. Um, no telling the sacrament seldom, if any, in case revealed to the gadding world, 
whatever under circumstances at all akin to those here attempted to be set forth, two of great nature's nobler order embrace. Is there a sacrament greater when a father has to give up his son? Can any of us imagine what the departure would have been like when, when the father gave up the son to come here in exile, take on our nature, and undergo a crucifixion? So it takes me back to my question. Do we lose something by... Is Melville trying to teach us something by creating the story... No, it's not Ishmael. By creating the story in which a, a young kid who's innocent but flawed has to be executed under the laws of that time. What, what is he offering in that that I'm, I'm pres presuming, you may disagree, that he could not have taught us 25 years earlier when he gave us Moby Dick and Ishmael? What, why did he end this way? What, what are we being given here that helps us see something about Christ? Because these images are Abraham giving up his son, something sacramental, when Billy and Veer embrace in that private cell when the two talk. Because what's going to come out of it is Billy's going to say, God bless Captain Veer, and Veer's going to say the same thing with him. He's going to care Veer, he's going to care Billy in his heart till the end of days. How tight is that tension? How fine is that tension? Reminds me of St. Thomas. God. <laughs> Christ never had that with Pilate. Say again, Jolie. Say, sir. I said, Christ never had that kind of moment with Pilate. Well, why did, wasn't it, what, did Christ say on the cross, why hast thou forsaken me? Yes. And, and also forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Yes. I mean, they're, um, yes. And, and in the garden, take this Maybe. cup away. I mean, there, there are moments as Christ goes closer and closer to the crucifixion, where everything human and divine in him is complete in going to that crucifixion, but we're also left, I think, with a sense, his saying, what were his words exactly? Whose words? Christ. What were Christ's words exactly? Um, why hast thou forsaken me? Mm -hmm. If you can take this cup away, take it away. Different times. Um, you know, so there are moments when even Christ... And what, to me, what makes it hard is Christ is innocent completely. We're not. Melville's giving us an image of a human being who has nothing, almost nothing but goodness, but he has this basic flaw. You Except remember, I've been, I, yes, 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 yes. But everything Christ did too was an answer to an injustice. Everything he did was to fulfill an injustice. He had to fulfill a law. And remember, Don, because this is the Orthodox, this is the Orthodox point of the mystery at the Catholic Church. That if you look at the person, if you look at the person crucified, nobody was more unjustly crucified because Christ did not deserve to die. If you look at the nature he assumed, he took on our human nature, there was nobody more deserving of justice. He had to do it to answer our justice because there's no other way 
he could have atoned for our sins. So right at the center of our faith is this extraordinary paradox um, that has to do with innocence and justice. Listen, let me stop. I did. I had no. I just looked at the clock. I had no idea that I'm this late and pulling you guys this far into the discussion. But I'm sorry. It took a lot to get to that thing. There's just a lot going on in Melville that's, um, you know, that that makes this so much. Suzanne's comment when we were talking about it earlier. I, I don't know where you guys are on it, but she said, I'm not sure that I've got this right. She said. Moby Dick is a much quieter work. No. Or, sorry. Billy Budd is a much quieter work. And, go ahead, finish. Nothing, it just startled me. I had to. She said, it, or Billy Budd is a much quieter work and more complex. You know, Billy Budd, or I mean Melville, or Moby Dick is black, white, Ahab, Ishmael, and Ishmael comes out. And with Billy Budd, you have a, a much more, even though it's a, it's a much, much smaller work, it, it, to me, it's going to something at the heart of our faith that is so paradoxical, so complex, that has to do with innocence and justice. And um, I think Melville gave us something really profound in this story that, that shows a maturity they didn't have even in, even in uh, Moby Dick. Okay, let me, I'm sorry for keeping you guys this late. I've, I've been pretty good until this time. Um, let's stop. You guys, we'll, next two weeks, we will, we will have a free-for-all, whatever questions you guys have. Um, if you would please send me any suggested topics, you know, to take up. What I'll do is print them off and send them so that you all can see, because I'm not sure that we'll be able to talk about them all, but I think it would be good for all of you to see them. So send me your thoughts on the next couple of weeks and what your thoughts are about continuing with the reading that I sent you guys, okay? Um, we, would all, um, keep, um, we will keep you in our prayers. If you would keep us, please, in your prayers, I'm, I'm particularly grateful um, right now. So, okay, you guys have a good week. Thanks for being honest. <laughs> You're, wel You're welcome, Jolie. Thanks. You guys be good, okay, and safe. When you left the first time? Yeah. Wait, Doc, can you...